This audio is brought to you by MuslimCentral.com. I want to thank Brother Anas for the uh, generous uh, welcome. You know, subhanAllah, this will be a lesson in, in the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, actually. I met Brother Anas uh, by chance and very quickly. Uh, I was at a conference with him for American Muslims for Palestine. And he introduced, he sat next to me and introduced himself to me. I was only there for three, four hours. I was on my way actually to the, the janazah of the daughter of Malcolm X at Hajj Malik al-Shabazz, Malika, rahimahullah ta'ala. And uh, I told him, oh, you're from Turkey. I said, I'm going to be transiting through Turkey. I'm on my way to Bosnia, inshallah ta'ala. I'll be there for a day. He said, let me host you. This is how that all happened in a matter of uh, less than two weeks, alhamdulillah. So may Allah bless you, Brother Anas, for... Uh, your generosity and may, and, and may Allah reward all of you for coming out Ibn Khaldun University. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, alhamdulillah. So I just appreciate all of you for making it out. May Allah reward you all for breathing the rain uh, to come here tonight, alhamdulillah, and allow that to be on your scale of good deeds. Allahumma ameen. The topic that I have is a pretty common one, but I want to speak about it from a very specific perspective. How many of you have heard of the incident of Ta'if with the Prophet Okay. How many of you have heard the dua of Ta'if? Very famous dua. Allahumma ilayka ashku da'fa quwwati. And so on. Wallah, I complain to you of my weakness, my inability. You've all heard that dua, right? Famously translated, uh, relayed narration through the books, though it's not documented with the scrutiny of a hadith, but very famous uh, transmission of the sentiment of the Prophet ﷺ in that moment of ta'if. But I want you to think about the du'as that you've never heard. Sayyidina al-Haritha radiallahu ta'ala anhu was the only person with the Prophet ﷺ on that journey of ta'if that witnessed him walking, covered in blood, with pebbles in his shoes, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And what hurts more is the rejection. More than the stones to the face of the Prophet Sallallahu the punches, the blood, were the wounds that were caused to his heart, Alayhi Salatu Wasallam. And Allah mentions that it hurts you what they say. This is the culmination, Ta'if comes after a lot of heartbreak. Ta'if comes after the death of the people that would console him. Amul Huzn. It's called the year of grief. The year of grief is when he lost Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha and he lost Abu Talib. It compounded the hurt that is yielded on the Prophet over time. And Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha did not witness the Prophet after Ta'if. She saw the Prophet after Uhud where the Prophet from a physical perspective, was wounded heavier than he was in Ta'if. Physically, the Prophet almost died in Uhud. His teeth were knocked out, alayhi salatu wasalam. He had blood running down his face. He was carried on the shoulders of his companions, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And she thought that was the worst day of his life, but instead the Prophet mentioned that that was the worst day of his life. It was Ta'if. When the people degraded him, mocked him, humiliated him, and he is left to call upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. Now subhanAllah, I think to myself, how amazing is it? We actually don't have a single narration 
about what the Prophet ﷺ was saying throughout the night as he made dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He prayed all night after dua of Can you imagine the sincerity and the depth of those words that were never narrated to us? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was hearing? Allah who is more merciful to his creation than a mother to her child, hearing the most beloved of his creation to him cry out to him, in his lowest moment. Think about where the dua of the Prophet is reaching in those moments. Think about how that dua is probably shaking the heavens. And none of us heard it. It's not documented in the books, but it's documented with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the battle of Badr, the night before Badr, you know, one of my, my favorite places to actually visit is Badr. It's not like Uhud, which is very close to the Masjid of the Prophet it's about an hour and a half out of Medina. It's very tranquil. It is, uh, the battlefield is intact. And so you can see exactly how it plays out in front of you. There's no streets cutting in between. You can see where the wells of Badr were, still carved out. You can see where the enemy came from. It's all there. Masjid al-Arish, the Masjid of the tent where the Prophet ﷺ was camped out. The tent of the Prophet ﷺ was right there. And Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu says that the Prophet spent the entire night before Badr in dua. Think about that. The night before Badr, the Prophet was supplicating the entire night. Now, all we have from that dua is the end of it. And it's when the Prophet sees Quraysh coming. So he's been praying the whole night, right? I mean, this is a very scary time. This is the first time that the Muslims are going to come face to face with Quraysh, heavily armed, outnumbering them with bad intentions. Their intention is to wipe out the Muslims once and for all, to kill the Prophet and to kill each and every single one of his companions. And it seems like a sure shot when they're coming. So Islam was meant to end right there in that battlefield of Badr. There weren't Muslims around the world that would carry on Islam. That was the only isaba, the only group of people upon La ilaha illallah. Can you imagine all of the people of La ilaha illallah in one part of the earth? That's stunning, right? They're all there and the Prophet is with them. And Ibn Abbas narrates the moment when the Prophet sees Quraysh coming with their arrogance, with their sense of triumph before the battle even starts. And the Prophet raises his hands to the sky. And he raises his hands so high that the garment that is on his shoulder falls. His garment falls and he says, Allahumma nasruka alladhi wa'attani. Oh Allah, the victory that you promised me. Allahumma anjizli ma wa'attani. Oh Allah, fulfill to me what you promised to me. O oh Allah, if this group of people is killed, you're not going to be worshipped on the earth after today. You won't be worshipped on this earth, O oh Allah, if this group of people is killed. And as he's doing that, وسلم, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq picks up his burd, his garment, his shawl, and he puts it around his shoulder. He says, Hasbuka ya Nabi Allah. Enough, O Messenger of Allah. Your Lord will give you what He promised you. And the Prophet ﷺ puts it back on 
and he recites that they will be defeated and they will turn back on their heels. Their animals and everything they came with will turn back in the direction of Mecca that they came from with such confidence, almost to where the naked eye would see it as a contradiction. If you looked at the Prophet at that moment, you might think that maybe there is doubt. There was no doubt. But the naked eye might look at him and say, the way he's making dua right now looks like a person who is very desperate, who's in doubt. The words that he's saying seem to indicate a fear in his words. And this is very powerful because the ulama, the scholars say, the Prophet was making dua throughout the entire night. We don't know those duas. We haven't heard them. They say that that part of his dua sallallahu alaihi wasallam was actually a teaching moment for the companions about how to make dua like a miskeen, like a person who is destitute, like a person who is completely in need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You want a dua of masakeen, the dua, the supplication of the poor and the oppressed? Look at the Prophet of Allah, a man who receives divine revelation, and look how he pleads with his Lord. And that was the moment that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, إِذْ تَسْتَغِيثُونَ رَبَّكُمْ فَاسْتَجَابَ لَكُمْ When you called out to your Lord, you pleaded with your Lord, and Allah answered you. And that's when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the malaika in the thousands. The thousands of angels came down from the skies, from the heavens, to support the Prophet and his army. So it was a teaching moment to the companions of the Prophet of Allah. That is what the ayah indicates. Am hasibatum an tadkhulul jannah? Do you think that you will enter into paradise? Walamma yatikum mathul aladina khalaw min qablikum. And then you hear about those that came before you. Masatum al baasa wa dhara wa zulzilu. They were struck with hardship. Al baasa, the ulama say here means al faqr, poverty. Wal dhara, hardship. Ay al amram. Sickness, all sorts of sicknesses break out amongst them. Wazulzilu, and they were shook. What is that referring to? Fear and anxiety. So they're struck in their material means, they're struck in their physical bodies, and they are struck in what? With their anxiety. They're struck with their fear. Until Hatta Yaqul Rasul Amanu until the Messenger of Allah and those that believed with him said, Mata Nasrullah. When is the help of Allah coming? The help of Allah is close to you, it is near. Now, Mata Nasrullah, as a scholar say, when is the help of Allah? Could be a form of praiseworthy dua or a form of hated questioning. When the Prophet says it, it is not questioning Allah's ability. It is reaffirming that Nasrullahi Qareeb, that the help of Allah is near. It is not a question of if, it is a question of when. It is not a question of Allah's capability. It's a question of have we done enough to deserve His help just yet? Have we done our part to qualify for the Nasr of Allah, to qualify for the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. SubhanAllah, if I'm a companion at Badr watching the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Ya Rasulullah, what is this? 
But what did it do? It immediately translated into the angels coming down from the heavens in a way that even the companions could see. So it gave them a form of thabat, a form of firmness. And they realized the Prophet of Allah وسلم, was teaching them about what it's like to plead to Allah in desperation. We will one day see the Prophet make dua. We will one day see the Prophet make dua. Can anyone tell me when? The Day of Judgment. When the people have been gathered, the first of them and the last of them, the human of them and the jinn of them, every single human being that has walked the face of the earth from Adam alayhi salam until the last person on this earth gathered in al ard al-Mahshar, in the place of assembly. What an awesome sight. Awesome not in the sense that it is something that we would look forward to, but awesome in that it inspires a sense of awe and the greatness of Allah over His creation. All flat earth, one plain white land, no landmarks, no signposts, no distinguishing features to any human being except for those who Allah has praised. And you look to the angels, and how are the angels described? Safan Safa la yatakallamun. Amazing. Jibreel alayhi salam, Mikael alayhi salam, Israfil alayhi salam. The angels lined up in rows and they don't speak. Everyone is looking for something to initiate the Day of Judgment. And the, the words of the Prophets, and everyone that day is what? Nafsi, nafsi. Everyone's worried about themselves. And the people start going to the Prophets of Allah. Nuh alayhi salam. Ibrahim alayhi salam. They go to these Prophets of Allah asking for intercession until so they come to the Prophet And the Prophet says, Ana laha. It is for me. And he says, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, I will ask permission to enter upon my Lord and I will enter and I'll fall in sajda, prostration. The entirety of mankind is watching the Prophet of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I want to see your lips move when I say Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The entirety of the creation is watching this man, Alayhi Salatu Wasallam, and placing its hopes in him. And he enters into the presence of his Lord in sajda. And what does he say, sallallahu alayhi wasallam? It's really powerful. He says that Allah will inspire in me, al-mahamid, husn al-thana, words of praise, words of glory, lam yuftah ala ahadin qabli. Words that will be inspired to me that have never been inspired to anyone before me. Meaning, there's a dua that I'm going to make there that even I don't know yet. SubhanAllah, think about that. Even the Prophet of Allah SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam is not sure yet what that dua is actually going to be. But Allah gave Adam Islam the words. When Adam Islam fell from the heavens, Allah فَتَلَقَّ Adam مِنْ رَبِّهِ كَلِمَات Look how merciful Allah is. Allah gave him the words to seek forgiveness with. <laughs> SubhanAllah. And that's when he called out to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala رَبَّنَا ظَلَمْنَا أَنفُسَنَا Oh Allah, we wronged ourselves. If you don't forgive us and have mercy upon us, then we're going to be from the losers. Allah gave him those words. Words of repentance. And here, the greatest son of Adam, 
and the entirety of the children of Adam, depending on this dua, and the Prophet doesn't know what he's going to say yet. But he knows that Allah will give him words to say that will initiate the entirety of the Day of Judgment. Allah will tell him, raise your head, O Prophet of Allah, ask and you will be given, intercede and your intercession will be accepted. SubhanAllah, what an awesome sight. May Allah allow us to be amongst those standing behind our Prophet Sallallahu on that day. Allahumma ameen. May Allah grant us that shafa'a, that special intercession of the Prophet Sallallahu on that day. Allahumma ameen. But those words, we won't know. Even he does not know Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. They're those words that you say to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala with the utmost sincerity. And the most beloved of your du'as to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala are those supplications that are made completely affirming His perfection and affirming your own brokenness before Him. It's the du'a of Ayyub Alayhi salam Ya Rabb, Masani Adur, I'm struck. I'm struck by hardship. And you are the most merciful of those who show mercy. The ulama say, SubhanAllah, Ayyub he minimized his pain, he maximized the mercy of Allah even after 18 years of living under horrific torture. Okay? SubhanAllah, all of that time, and he calls upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, I've been struck by a hardship, some harm. And you are the most merciful of those who show mercy. And Allah opens up the doors for Ayyub in ways that he has never seen before. The topic is how do you see light in times of great darkness? How do you find hope in times of great despair? And for many of us, when we think about the light at the end of the tunnel, we spend so much time trying to find the light at the end of the tunnel that we forget to focus on the one who gives light, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That the point of getting through hardship is not that you can rationalize a way out. Sometimes when you're going through something individually, the only time you find some peace or contentment is when you can actually think of the way out. You actually can think about what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to give you afterwards and you can see a path forward and that's when you start to feel goodness. Not realizing that the point is to focus on who? Allah Himself. To focus on the giver of light, to focus on the giver of mercy, to focus on the one who relieves all distress in those moments. And that is a form of beauty. That's number one, keeping your focus on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number two, and this is something that I think a lot of us make a mistake sometimes when we're thinking about the collective, the community, and the plans that we make for goodness in this life and the things we hope to do for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A lot of times we get obsessed with the results of our own efforts. We get obsessed with seeing goodness come to be in our own lives. SubhanAllah, if you look at the ayah that I recited, Am hasibatum an jannah, do you think you'll enter into paradise? Allah answers with what? All of the hardships of this world and people seeking relief in this world, not with the reasons by which a person enters into Jannah. Because the focus should be on Jannah the entire time. The focus should be on the reward of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, 
not the success of your results. The focus should be on the reward of Allah, not the success of your results. And a lot of times we mix up the two. We get so focused on seeing victory, seeing our efforts come to fruition, that we forget that at the end of the day, Allah is the one who's going to bless or deprive. Allah will give on His time. And what I need to be focused on is the sincerity of my intention and the pursuit of His reward. And that's not going to translate into a lack of effort. In fact, it will give me resilience of my efforts of good because I trust that the efforts are never really in my hands. And so I put and I put and I put into those efforts, knowing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may give fruit to this effort after I pass away. It might not come to fruition in my lifetime. How many people inspired the world but never got to live to see the inspiration that they put into this world? Can you imagine Khadija radiallahu anha never lived to see the legislation of Salah? Imagine if the Prophet could have come down from Isra al Mi'raj and went to Khadija radiallahu anha and told Khadija about what happened in Isra al Mi'raj. Khadija did not get to make Hijrah. She died in Mecca before all of that. A woman of perfect Iman never lived to see Siyam Ramadan. It's incredible. She didn't see it. All of this was foreign to her because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took her before all of that even happened. But it's there. Think about the Anbiya of Allah, the Prophets of Allah. In one narration, the Prophet mentioned 124,000 Prophets. 124,000 Prophets. Some of those Prophets we know, and we know about the hard time that they had. Nuh alayhi salam. Nuh alayhi salam averaged less than a convert per decade. Think about that. The, if you take the entirety of Nuh Islam's followers and you spread them out over 950 years, 80 followers in one narration, over 950 years, that means it's less than a convert per decade. And along the way, lots of mockery and humiliation. And look what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes of Nuh salam, The first messenger of Allah that will be called on the Day of Judgment and the Ummah of Muhammad salam, steps in to testify on his behalf. The first messenger of Allah called on the Day of Judgment is Nuh salam, and the entire Ummah of Muhammad salam, reciting Surah, Surah Nuh <laughs> steps in and says that this Prophet did his job. We are a testimony to the job of Nuh salam, to his people. He did his job. Imagine Nuh salam, seeing this entire Ummah of people standing on his behalf in the courtroom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Nuh salam, did his job. And there are prophets, you know, the Prophet described the Anbiya of Allah like a house. He is the last brick, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There are prophets who left this earth with one follower. Prophets who left this earth with no followers. A Nabi of Allah, a Prophet of Allah with his miracles and not a single person to accept his message but he's still part of the house. And that's the point. Allah decides how to build the house, not you. You do as you're told, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring something out of it, even if it is in ways that you cannot comprehend or understand. And so focus on his reward, not your result. Focus on his reward, not your result. 
Many great people walked this earth and put seeds in it. And even those that were growing did not recognize who planted the initial seeds. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, سَنَكْتُبُ مَا قَدَّمُوا وَأَثَارَهُمْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ أَحْصَيْنَاهُ فِي الْمُبِينَ Allah will document every footstep. Allah will document every deed put forward. Allah will document the legacies. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will compensate accordingly. It's there, but focus on His reward, not your results. You have to let that go. The next thing is to focus on the planner, not your plan. Sometimes you plan and Allah plans. And sometimes your plans don't work out. As long as you are sincere in your intention and doing your best, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make something out of it. It goes back to a very personal level where Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu talked about dua. You know, the Prophet said that Allah will answer the dua of a person until they say what? Allah will answer your dua until you say what? Anyone know? I made dua and Allah did not answer me. That's when it's closed. Allah will answer your duas until you shut the door of your own dua. Yes, He'll answer it in ways sometimes that you can't understand, but He will keep on answering your dua. If you make a hundred duas for the same thing and you can't, you have not seen the result of a single one of them. Allah has answered all 100 of them in ways that you cannot understand. Until you say, Lam I made dua and Allah did not answer me. Then you take out the ability or the efficacy of your own dua by your questioning the one who you're making dua to. Don't question the planner. Don't question the designer. Allah knows what He's doing. And so you make dua. And the last thing, dear brothers and sisters, the ability of the Prophet ﷺ to see good in the hardest of times. Sometimes there are things that are happening around us that are good omens for us to, to say Alhamdulillah for. How many of you have heard of Imam Siraj Wahaj? You see the show of hands? Alhamdulillah. All right. Imam Siraj is uh, an amazing human being, an Imam in the United States really a, a pioneer, has done much work. May Allah preserve him and bless him and accept from him. And I remember uh, being at a fundraiser with him recently, you know, our generation of Muslims, we're down on everything. We talk about how bad the community is. We talk about how no one's doing anything right. All organizations are failing. All the shuyukh are corrupt. Everyone is horrible. And at the end of the day, you know what that gives us? It gives us an excuse to not do anything. An excuse for my idleness is to question every good effort. Cast doubt on every good effort and say it's all for nothing and these people are all fake and everyone is this and everyone is that. And what does that do? It gives me a sense of complacency and a sense of, of, of meaning and purpose because I'm the only one tweeting. I'm the one that's doing all the, you know, I'm setting the record straight. So you do your jihad on your keyboard and everybody else's mujahada is for batil, is for falsehood. But your jihad on your keyboard, mashallah, right? We have, we have this, 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 this tendency to just keep on, you know, just throwing negative uh, things towards everything, right? And sometimes it's a lot less nefarious than that. I mean, sometimes it's pessimistic about everything. Someone starts something good and you say, this is gonna fail. No way they'll be able to overcome this. 
And subhanAllah, there are naysayers in every situation, even in the Quran. Like think about it, if you were with the people of Musa alayhi salam, Musa alayhi salam gets to the water. Think about the pressure on Musa alayhi salam. He's got his whole ummah with him, Bani Israel. The most ruthless army in the world is right behind him, on his tail. The people looking at Musa alayhi salam, like what are you gonna do now? We're dead, right? We've seen Fir'aun cut people into pieces over and over and over again. We're done, right? And what did they say? They start to blame him. They caught us. Where's your God now? What's going to happen now? Like, like he needed that at that moment. Right? He didn't need that at that moment. And of course, there were some believers amongst Bani Israel that might have been shook by those words. But what did Allah give him? Allah gave him the staff. Split the seas for him. The naysayers, they rode along. <laughs> they took the opening. But the reward was only assured for those who had certainty throughout. The dunyawi opening, the worldly opening, everyone benefited from. You know, it's a, the, the term is bandwagoning in, in, in America at least, right? They jumped on the bandwagon. At that point when the success is happening, everybody can ride along. But there were some that were walking through the seas and saying, MashaAllah, probably patting Musa Islam on the back and saying, good job, we never doubted you. That a minute ago we're saying what? We're done. Can't you see what's happening now? But now, mashallah, in Khandaq, in Khandaq with the Prophet ﷺ and the believers that were digging the ditch, there were some that were you know, not really digging. Right? Some of them were munafiqun. They were hypocrites. They were pretending to be amongst them. And they weren't really digging. You had some that were digging, mashallah, right? There's a difference in the digging. Now, if you, if you walked up to them in those moments, you'd see them all, you know, with something in their hands. The Prophet ﷺ dug by himself, by the way, more than what 10 people would dig. It's one of my proudest moments of the Prophet ﷺ. Ismail Bara describes and he said, I saw the Prophet ﷺ rise up from the ditch and the Prophet ﷺ, every part of his skin was covered in mud. What a beautiful Prophet, What a leader, right? What a Sayyid to his Qawm, what a leader of his people. He was in the trenches, literally, to where not a single part of his blessed skin showed وسلم, from the amount of work that he was doing. And the Ansar and the Muhajireen are singing these songs. Allahumma la Aisha illa Aisha al-Akhirah. And the Prophet وسلم, looks at them and says, Oh Allah, there is no life except for the life of the hereafter. Fakhfir lil Ansar wal Muhajirah. So forgive the Ansar and the Muhajir, these young people that gave it all in. But you know what? You know what those hypocrites were saying? Allah and His Prophet have not promised us except delusion. We're done. Why are you people happy? Why are you singing these songs of motivation? Why are you making dua? Why are you digging so hard? We already know they're going to find a way to massacre us. We're never going to build this trench in time. But you better believe that after the success of the Khandaq, some of those people came forth and were high-fiving each other, right? We did it. You didn't do anything. You rode along at the end and then you waited for the next moment so that you could show your hypocrisy. But everyone rode at the time of success. The Prophet ﷺ in Hudaybiyah, SubhanAllah, like, it's one of my favorite moments because it's like those subtle things about the Prophet ﷺ. About how he always saw good, always saw good. Suhail ibn Amr, 
radiallahu ta'ala anhu. By the way, Suhail is one of my favorite companions because his story is an exception to the majority of the tulaqa, those who became Muslim last. He really, he, he really has an almost strange phenomenon. If any of you watched the first, watched the lecture that we did about Suhail radiallahu ta'ala anhu, very interesting person. I mean, two decades of oppressing the Prophet But then when he became Muslim, he, he resembled the Muhajireen. Interesting person, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, then died as a shaheed, radiallahu anhu, but in Hudaybiyyah, it's the last person you wanna see. When the Prophet saw Suhail, the meaning of the word Suhail is ease. Rasulullah smiled and he said, Sahula, our affair has become easy. Allah sent us Suhail, therefore things are going to be Sahil. Like he even saw good in the name of the chief negotiator. That there is something to be happy about, that Allah is sending us signs of goodness to come. As he sends to us Suhail radiallahu ta'ala anhu. That's special. That's the eye of prophetic optimism. To see hope and to expand it. To see hope and to expand it in difficult times. I think I, I forgot to tell you the Imam Siraj story, didn't I? I just realized that. I went from Imam Siraj and then I started talking about Bani Israel and I forgot about Imam Siraj. Imam Siraj, I was, I was, I was sitting with him and he literally, he, I was sitting next to him, he tapped me on the table. He said, Omar, I never thought in my lifetime I'd see banners about Islam on the subway system and thousands of masajid in America. Because he lived in a time in America where they had less than 100 masjids and the public knew very little of Islam and he was just bragging about where Islam has come. And subhanAllah, I remember right before he said that to me, I was thinking about something negative about the state of our community. And he's just so optimistic, so happy. And I'm like, what a man. What a beautiful eye to have. The Prophet ﷺ had that prophetic eye. And when we think about good, you know, seeing goodness even in the midst of a very hard time, seeing light even in the midst of darkness, those who say the people have no hope in them is the most hopeless of them all. Ahlakahum is the most hopeless of them all. Ahlakuhum is the one who's making them all hopeless. You know when the naysayer in the group deflates everybody? Don't be that person. Don't be that person. Something good is happening and immediately you point out the flaws of it. Don't be that person. You see something or someone imperfect, see the good and make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala expand it. Don't put it down. Don't put it down. Because pessimists make pessimists. They deflate dreams. And they stop great people from being great sometimes. Or they stop people from following great people. Right? Because they get in the way with very convenient barriers of negativity. If you're a pessimist, most of the time you're going to be right. <laughs> most of the time you're going to be right. You know, it's really nice to see I told you so. I knew right away that thing was going to fail. I knew this was going to happen. Good for you. Now, what good are you doing? Nothing. Next person that tries to do good, oh, it's this, 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 this is why it's going to fail. Then when it fails, mashallah, you're able to offer your commentary and portray yourself as a wise man or a wise woman. You're not wise. You're just really, really unpleasant to be around. <laughs> That's not wisdom. That's not hikmah to be able to see error and to bring it down or to be able to predict failure because most efforts will fail. 
proportionally speaking, most of the time, efforts are not going to materialize. But Allah teaches us why. وَلَئِنْ شَكَرْتُمْ لَأَزِيدَنَّكُمْ If you are grateful, I will increase you. That equation is true for everything, including light in the time of darkness. In your personal life, when you have a million reasons to complain, but one reason to be grateful, and you say, Alhamdulillah, for the one reason, Allah will increase it. And put into perspective the million reasons to complain. And in regards to our da'wah and our efforts and the things that Ta'ala, we hope to do for His sake, so long as we hope to do it for His sake. We say, Alhamdulillah, look where it's come. There was a time where this gathering was not possible. Alhamdulillah for this gathering. Alhamdulillah for the ability to know one another through La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. Alhamdulillah for the da'wah of Al-Islam being so alive and thriving despite all of the forces that try to do what? Yuriduna liyutufi'u nur Allahi bi afwahihim. They wish to extinguish the light of Allah with their mouths. They can grow their media outlets. They can get more exquisite and specific in their arguments against Islam. They can get better at skewing and misinterpreting and decontextualizing. They can get more advanced in messing with your minds, with the imagery that they are able to use. They wish to extinguish the light of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But who's going to preserve Allah's light? It's not you and I. Allah will preserve His light. Allah will preserve His light, even if they hate it. Allah will preserve His light. We just hope that Allah will let us carry those torches. We don't light the torches. We don't make the light happen. We just say Alhamdulillah when Allah gives us one. Allah gave me a candle, Allah gave me a light, Alhamdulillah for that. Let Allah expand that light. We know that the design of the designer will come to be. Here's the, the blessing of where we're at. This ummah will never die. Islam will not be extinguished. The Muslims will not be wiped out. The end of times is victory from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. At no point should we ever feel like Allah has lost control of this affair. It's never happened and it never will happen. Allah is in control during the time of the Crusades and Allah is in control during the most glorious days of Islam. Allah is in control in Mecca. Allah is in control in Medina. Allah is in control in Habasha. Allah was in control in the year 610. Allah was in control in 623 when it looked entirely different. Allah did not lose a grip of things at any point. But as believers, just remember these two things. Focus on His reward, not your result. Focus on His reward, not your result. Focus on the planner, not your plans. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to always see the light in darkness. May Allah allow us to be the light in darkness. May Allah forgive us for our shortcomings. May Allah forgive us when we question Him. May Allah forgive us when we are insincere to Him. 
May Allah direct all of our efforts to be sincere for Him, all of our longing to be towards Him. And may Allah make us amongst those who make our Prophet ﷺ proud. Ya Allah, we ask you to make us amongst those that make our Prophet ﷺ proud. Ya Allah, allow this gathering to be one that is pleasing to you. Let all of us who came be forgiven. Let the sins be departed from us and write us amongst those who you are pleased with. We ask you, O Allah, to open up the doors for us in our personal lives and in our community lives. We ask you, O Allah, to lift the hardship from your ummah. We ask you, O Allah, to put barakah in our efforts to please you. And we ask you, O Allah, that all of it materializes in your reward of Jannah al-Firdaus and the companionship of our beloved Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allahumma ameen. Jazakumullahu khayran. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Omar, for this wonderful speech. We would love to hear until morning. I mean, I was like just, uh, you know, listening and then I watched at the time and was almost one hour and uh, was so, uh, you all agree with me, was so, you know, fast. It went like anything. So thank you very much again for this uh, wonderful uh, speech. Now, uh, we have a Q&A. But I would like to ask you from now, we would rather not to have comments. We have questions that not have more than 30 seconds. Please, if you have questions, go directly to the topic, maintaining hope in dark times and ask the, the, the question directly so we can have as much as questions we have, inshallah. All right. Question here. All right, go ahead. Assalamualaikum, Jazakallah Khairan, Dr. Omar. Um, I'm just wondering, especially with mental health in Islam, it's coming up a lot more. Um, there also seems to be a lot of spiritual bypassing. You know, like um, I think you know what I'm talking about in terms of you know have strong iman, pray that type of thing. So I'm just wondering in terms of maintaining hope in dark times. What's the balance between tying your camel, tying your camel, trusting Allah, um, and especially for those who are suffering from mental health illnesses or dark, really dark times? Zakman khair for the question. Um, uh, first of all, yes, there is a lot of spiritual bypassing. Um, one of the things that we're we're blessed to have at Yaqeen, Alhamdulillah, is we have on our research team mental health specialists, as well as scholars of the tradition. And uh, the trauma series at Yaqeen is something I've personally benefited from a lot. So it was actually a research that, I mean, that research was commissioned and for a year, you had uh, sisters who are mental health professionals working with Islamic scholars to produce a series of papers that are now being compiled into a book, alhamdulillah. There are some videos that accompany it as well, the trauma series uh, at Yaqeen. And uh, to answer your question, there is spiritual bypassing. However, spirituality is part of the healing process in all situations, but at the same time, we shouldn't discount the role of mental health. Where it becomes most harmful is when a person is facing depression and they're told that it's because you don't have faith, uh, where they equate depression with low iman. And the reality is that it's a far more complex matter, of course, 
And there's a lot that's happened over the last couple of years in particular that I think requires us to, to refocus. So I would say that it's important for us to incorporate that component of mental health. And at the same time, I would say that it's important for us to always keep Islam as a part of our mental health, faith as a part of the healing and as a part of our mental health, even while we consider the physiological elements of ourselves, our emotional elements, our mental elements, our spiritual elements, our physical elements, that Islam is always a part of it. And inshallah ta'ala, that will help us to always have a more wholesome uh, response to it. But to those that may be struggling uh, with depression, to seek help or to seek a cure uh, for your anxiety, for your depression, so that you can be more able, a more able servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a better version of yourself is actually ibadah. It's an act of worship. A lot of people would think it's a weakness uh, when I have to seek help and try to overcome whatever it is that I'm facing at the moment. But the reality is, is that when you do that for an intention to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to be the best version of yourself, then that in and of itself, inshallah ta'ala, is a form of ibadah. It's a form of worship and certainly not uh, anything that would be displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Zakumullah. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, firstly, welcome to our university, your home. <laughs> and I was I would like to say you uh, in the story of Baqara, there is a there are two there are there is a verse uh, which is uh, and in the same verse, we can see that Actually, Allah gives us that permission that I will not give you any difficulties about which you cannot do. But at the same time, we pray, uh, why, uh, my dear Allah, please don't give me uh, the difficulties which I cannot do. Why? Uh, is there any uh, contrary or Something like that, I want to ask Zakallah about that. Zakallah khair. Very good question, actually. Um, in the end of Surah Al-Baqarah, لا يكلف الله نفساً إلا وسعها. Allah does not burden a soul beyond its scope. And then you ask Allah, Oh my Lord, do not burden me beyond my scope and in the way that people before us were burdened. Uh, first and foremost, even the Sahaba had this question. Yeah. They were afraid when they heard in تُبْدُوا مَا فِي أَنفُسِكُمْ أَوْ تُخْفُوهُ يُحَاسِبُكُمْ بِهِ اللَّهِ they were afraid of the verse that if you conceal it within yourself or if you express it, Allah will hold you accountable for it. So some of the Sahaba, they feared, Ya Rasulullah, will we even be accountable for our thoughts. And indeed the Prophet ﷺ said, Allah has forgiven my ummah for what a person says to themselves. As long as a person does not verbalize it or act upon it. So uh, something that may arise on the inside, you will not be accountable for it. Then the ayah here, لا يكلف الله نفساً إلا وسعها. I think it's important to break down um, what the immediate implications of the ayah are. There's a wide implication here that you will not be burdened beyond your scope. And a lot of times you don't understand your scope until you're pushed. You know, I'm not going to say how many of you lift weights because everyone's going to say you, you exercise and lift weights. You know, All the guys are going to raise their hands and their arms are popping out of their, uh, their clothes. But... You know, if anyone has lifted weights before, like Anas, mashallah, always lifting weights, sir. <laughs> when you lift weights, um, 
You don't know your capacity until you keep pushing yourself. And a lot expands your capacity. That's the physical self. Spiritual self is very similar to that, actually. When you start praying Qiyamulil, praying witted is a burden. Praying witted is a burden. Then you add two rakats to that. And maybe the first time, you know, that's okay. You're starting, but your capacity is expanding. When you're tested and tried, there are times, and I know that there are people in here that have gone through tests that they thought they would not get through, but Allah brought you through it, didn't he? Right? And that's something important, by the way. You know, the ulama mentioned very beautifully about Zakariya alayhi salam. Um, when Zakaria called out to Allah and he said, I've never been let down, O Allah, by you. I've never been deprived. Every time I've called upon you, O Allah, before, you've given it to me. One of the ulama said, Very beautifully. He said that he asked the one who showed him ihsan in the past to show ihsan to him again. That's what in shakartum. You're grateful, so Allah increases you. Like Zakariya was not saying, Ya Allah, you've known how much I've wanted this child. I'm 90 years old now. Did it have to wait until my hair became gray? No. He, he says, I've, I've never felt let down by you, O oh Allah. So sometimes you're in the midst of a hardship and you can't, you think you're not going to make it through, but then Allah pulls you through it. So your scope expands, your capacity expands. So that's the, certainly there's a benefit to that. But the immediate implications of the ayah, number one, is the tashri' upon the Ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that in the Sharia that has been given to the Ummah of the Prophet Sallallahu there is ease for every difficulty embedded into the law. So there, for example, there is uh, a kafara that is given to an oath. Uh, there's expiations that are given to broken oaths. There are, you know, uh, licenses, concessions, ruchas, for the one who is sick, for the one who is traveling. Uh, in regards to fasting and other things, for hajj, um, for only the one, only the one who can do so. So the immediate implications are the taysir, the ease in the sharia of Muhammad Because it's the last sharia that was given to earth, it embeds the most ease. So actually, if you compare the sharia of Muhammad to the sharia of Musa, there is more ease, more taysir in the Sharia of Muhammad than any Sharia that came before. So that's the immediate implication that Allah has made things easy for us. And truly, Islam is not hard. Some people, you know, the religion is easy, the Prophet said. Some people say, why is Islam so hard? Why is Islam so hard? Why? It's not really that hard. <laughs> you know, imagine if we had to pray 50 times a day. Imagine that, right? 50 times a day. Look at the taysir, even in the legislation of the most important practical pillar of Islam. Salah, 50 to 5. And then you're rewarded for 50 when you pray 5. So that's the immediate implication. Also in the muhasaba and how Allah takes account of us. That Allah does not burden us by punishing us for things that we did not act upon, but things that may occur in the head. Okay, so that's ease. So that would make the ayah, Don't burden us with a burden that was placed on those before us. Notice the ayah does not say, don't overburden us like you burdened those before us. Because even those that came before were not overburdened. Allah did not give to the, to the people of Musa an unreasonable sharia. Okay? But our sharia is easier. So you're not saying, 
don't overburden us like you overburdened those that came before us. You're saying, don't burden us with the same burden of those that came before us. Okay? So it's even easier. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that with iman and with yaqeen and with certainty and faith that these things even become easier for us to practice. Jazakumullah khair. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Umar, and welcome to our university, first of all. Uh, the other day I was in the class and uh, an email came, uh, Dr. Umar Suleiman, and I was like, I stopped the lesson and I started looking at it. And I told my students that, guys, register for it. You know, so I was very excited, alhamdulillah, that Allah uh, gave us this opportunity. I had a very um, general and broad question, but just wanted to have a glimpse of your ideas on it. Every time has its glitters and, you know, of batil and attractions. And it was there in the time of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu too. But what is the basic syllabus that we need to follow, especially when we are preaching or we are telling things about our religion to youngsters and children? What is the basic that we need to follow ourselves and teach it to our children? Thank you. That's a great question. Um, you know, the last two khutbahs that I've given are actually on this subject, by the way, on seeing through deception and distraction and the importance of seeing through things. So it's a thoughtful question. Um, the answer that I'll give will be partial, I think. One of the, the methods of da'wah that we find from the Prophet and from the Anbiya as a whole is they called attention to the emptiness that the idols were actually providing to their people. Ya abati, nima ta'abudu ma la yasma'u wa la yusiru wa la yughni anka shay'a. Oh my father, why are you worshipping that which does not see, hear, or benefit you in any way? Lan tughni anka shay'a. So it was, was, was embedded in the call of the Prophet of Allah. These idols are not doing anything for you. And the thing is, they knew it. They knew that the idols were not doing anything for them. I think that in this day and age, to call attention to the emptiness that all of these false ideals, which are also false idols, yield, is a powerful way of bringing someone back to the meaningful life of Islam. Okay? So, for example, in a world that emphasizes image, you emphasize self-actualization. Who are you? Who are you? Do you like the person that you see in the mirror? How do you start liking the person that you see in the mirror? Not because of the cosmetics of you or because how many people like you, but because of the character and the faith that yields something more meaningful. I think that this world uh, is becoming emptier. I think people are finding less reasons for fulfillment. I think we're the most, we are the emptiest generation. I just gave a, a talk on hope. God. All right, let me rewind that, all right? <laughs> here's, here's the glimpse of hope of this, all right? Collectively, even the Prophet Sallallahu said that every generation decreases in faith. Uh, so every generation that comes collectively as a generation is worse off than the one that came before it. Then eventually there's a revival, uh, and there are revivers in every generation, right? But I think, subhanAllah, you know, uh, this pandemic really revealed a lot about humankind, didn't it? Uh, it really brought out 
what people are seeking. And some, sometimes people don't yet know what they're seeking. But when they find Allah, they say, this is what I was missing. You know, subhanAllah, there are people, I was doing an interview earlier today. Bananas gave me a million interviews to do today. That was the, the not so, ha see, I only mentioned the hopeful thing, which is I met him and then alhamdulillah, this happened. But I didn't mention the other things. But there's also good food, alhamdulillah, along the way. But no, uh, seriously, you know, subhanAllah, uh, there was uh, a question and I was talking about the fact that so many people that were born and raised in Islam, they don't realize the blessing that literally fell in their laps. I see people become Muslim that leave behind the most glamorous lives, that leave behind parties and palaces for la ilaha illallah, and they say, I've never been happy until now. And then I see young Muslims running towards that glitter and that and, and that lifestyle thinking that it's going to give them happiness. It's like you have the treasure in your lap. You were blessed. How many of you were raised Muslim? Can I see a show of hands? Did anyone in here, I'd, I'd like, did anyone in here convert to Islam? Are there any converts in the crowd? SubhanAllah. One. Two. All right, now it feels like a fundraiser. Oh, mashallah. <laughs> That's right. Mashallah, brother Hassan, his wife. It's beautiful to see you both. Alhamdulillah. So three, three people that converted to Islam. You don't know the treasure that's fallen in your lap. You know, an imam, so, so there's something to, to think about this that, you know, you have to rediscover the beauty of your faith and how much fulfillment it gives to you. And especially when you're talking to those of you that are parents and you're talking to your kids, give them the ways to where they can really appreciate the beauty of, of faith for themselves instead of being something that's been passed down. You know, say the best wealth. You know, people don't, uh, are, are more reckless with their inherited wealth than they are with their earned wealth. So, subhanAllah, those that earn the wealth of Islam, they're a lot more diligent with it. You see people, I see people that convert to Islam, I say, subhanAllah, in one week that person is a more pious Muslim than me, you know, than, than most people that I know. How did that happen, right? Because they found it. And when you find it, you're like, oh, this is what it was. This is what it was the whole time. So there's a saying from a Shafi'i, rahimahullah, he said, Ya Rabb, razaqtani al-Islam wa lam as'aluk. Oh Allah, you gave me Islam and I didn't even ask you for it. It just fell in my lap. Farzuqni al-Jannah, so grant me Jannah wa an as'aluk, and I'm asking you. Like you gave me Islam so easily, I didn't have to fight for it. How merciful of a Rabb you are, how merciful of a Lord you are. So give me Jannah and I'm asking you for it. What is it then if I ask you for Jannah? So alhamdulillah for what we have, and we have to translate that beauty to other people. And sometimes that means pointing out how the false ideals are indeed false idols. And they're not yielding you anything but more emptiness. Zakallah. Thank you very much. Alaikum, Dr. Suleiman. Thank you for your talk. Um, you mentioned ve something very interesting and compelling about pessimism. However, one proverb in the English language that really speaks to me is pessimism of intellect and optimism of will. Maybe it's because of the British weather that I have this pessimism of intellect. But if I may come to the question, 
how do we safeguard ourselves from being carried away with optimism? And if we relate, re relate this to something like climate change, many people, because of their optimism, they deny this. And if I may, I wanted to also ask about how we as Muslims contend with and do about the dis disastrous predictions put forward by many organiz organizations about climate change and about what will happen. Okay. The last part, could you say that again? About what? How do we contend with and what do we do about um, the predictions made by many organizations reg oh. regarding the climate and what we can practic practically do about this as Muslims? Thank you. Jazakallah khair. Um, great question. There is good hope and there is bad hope. There is good fear and there is bad fear. Good hope is raja to have hope in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that while you do your best and fall short that he will fill the shortcomings. Bad hope is ghurur. Okay? Um, or tilka amani yuhum. People that said, You know, all I've heard is, heard is about the mercy of Allah. You know, he's so merciful. I might not pray. I might not do all this stuff. I might be doing this haram. But, you know, even if I go to hell, like, it'll just be a few days. Allah talks about that mindset. Yeah, I'm not the best Muslim. It's okay. Like, being content and complacent with sin and then expressing hope in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Don't do that. Hope is doing the best you can and knowing that Allah will accept you for your imperfections because of who he is, not who you are, so long as you're trying your best. Delusion is when you're not doing anything and then you're placing your hope in Allah's mercy while rejecting his commands and his pathway to that mercy. Fear is that I might not be doing enough, so I need to do more. Despair is debilitating. I'm not gonna do anything because I'm gonna fail anyway. Uh, so that's al-khawf which is healthy, healthy fear. And um, um, uh, what's the word? Ablasa. Uh, Iblis actually comes from this, al-mublisun, people that despair uh, from the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So optimism is always good. Just like Allah's mercy exceeds his wrath, our optimism should always be enough to push us forward. But at the same time, we shouldn't be delusional. We also should not stop being self-critical. Uh, you know, a, a good sign of a person's iman is that they criticize themselves in ways they don't criticize others. So there's the person that deflates everybody else's efforts and says everyone, you know, they're all on batil and they don't know what they're doing and I'm on, I'm on haq because I can call out the batil, right? Uh, I'm on the truth and they're all upon falsehood and I get it and they don't. And they don't do anything, nor do they let anyone else do anything. And then there are those that say, you know, Mashallah, these are beautiful efforts. May Allah bless them. And they're self-critical. They, they look at their own sins, their own pitfalls, and they say, how can I do better? And they're self-critical. So that's the balance of that. As for the gloomy predictions, um, you're right. It's not looking good when it comes to climate change. And that is Dahr al-Fasad, al-Birri bil-Bahr, that Corruption has appeared. It's one manifestation. It's not the obvious meaning of the ayah. But truly, corruption has appeared on the land and the seas because of what man's hands have earned. Purely man-made disasters. Uh, I think this is one of the areas where Muslims should be leading in the ethical discourse about climate change. A lot of what's taking place with climate change right now is an extension of the overall greed that dominates human beings. 
that I will do what is, what is convenient to me, even if it's to the destruction of everybody around me. That's both at the level of corporation and at consumer, institution and individual, right? Um, that it just doesn't matter what happens to the world around me, people or earth, I'm going to do what's convenient. There's no consideration for the toxicity of what we do, nor for the generation that comes after us. I think Muslims should be leading the way and producing uh, ways forward from a spiritual paradigm of how to address environmentalism and climate change. I also think artificial intelligence is another realm in which Muslims should lead the way in terms of ethical discussions as we're really starting to depart from what it means to be a human being. The first time I ever saw a robot in a restaurant, by the way, was today. I don't know if that's a thing in Turkey or not, but we don't have robots in restaurants in Texas. You know? We have people with guns, but we don't have robots in our restaurants in Texas. Like, what's going on here? So we should be leading the way, I think, in the ethics, in the discussion of ethics when it comes to climate change, as well as artificial intelligence, because these will, by far, I think, be the dominant uh, two realms in the immediate future. Allahu Yes, Salam alaikum, Sheikh. Uh, here, I think I have a special gift for you. Uh, first of all, I'm Umar from Africa. Uh, actually, I consider today as one of the most important moments uh, in the life of Ibn, uh, uh, in my life at Ibn Hadun University. Actually, you are one of my, uh, you are one of the scholars that I really love. I follow you on Instagram, Twitter, uh, and any other social media platform. And I do like the way that you're trying to promote the image of Islam and you, are, you stand for, for the cause of Allah. But the most important uh, aspect of your scholarship is not uh, how you tend to kind of promote the image of Islam, but how you use that platform of being Islamic scholar to speak for humanity. And uh, I really appreciate the way you stand for those who have been oppressed over, uh, over the years, especially in U.S. And uh, I realized that uh, you admire the one that I love the most, one of the important adults in the history of uh, black people in America. Uh, that is why I decided tonight uh, to come and give you this uh, special gift as uh, something to appreciate you for your stand against the abuse of humanity. So I have a book here that I write to, to, to rewrite the history of Africa because I'm not actually okay with the way that the slavery, colonization, and the imperialism of Africa have been written about by the Europeans and other scholars around the world. So I took my time to say yes, it is time for Africans to, st to stand up and write their own history. So this history... So here's the book. It's my first book. The reason that I say it is my first book, because Alhamdulillah, I have another one, and it will be out in no time. So I would like to present my first book as a gift to you tonight. And I think it is something very important for me.
Bismillah. You got it? Yes, I Until it reads, I will pass it. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. So we have a community, a center that we try to make da'wah in Istanbul. And I am volunteer of the center for a couple of years. And we, when we go into the mosque, waiting for the foreigners to make da'wah by saying, Labbaik Allahumma Labbaik and Rabbi Shahi Sadri and so on. And when that person that we called to Islam just walks out of door without having it, without taking the shahada, we're just disappointed, heartbroken. And I know that we cannot be professionals in this because this is something that we do with our whole heart. But also we need to improve, I know this. So I personally have some difficulties about having that balance between saying, okay, I could have done better, so I should improve this and this side. Maybe I could have uh, give this answer, this side, so that maybe it would be better. And the other side saying, this was not by me, this was by Allah, so I should not be sad. So um, I, I want to ask you about this balance. So we should improve, but also about tawakkul on the other side. Thank you. Something very precious that one of my mashayikh told me, never regret anything that you said or did seeking to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when you're looking in the past and you say, I could have said that better, I could have done that better. If you were sincere when you did it, don't regret it. But improve for the future. So do not dwell upon how you could have done this better or said that better, as long as you were sincere. Instead, refine your sincerity and refine your methods, inshallah ta'ala. And keep thinking about how to speak, how to get better, how to do better. But don't look back and say, I could have done this or I could have done that better. Because that's not going to be helpful, nor is it what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tasks you with. And that's the tawakkul in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. By the way, I'll say this, subhanAllah, sometimes, so I, as a public speaker, sometimes I give a lecture and I think it was awful. But it changed someone's life. And sometimes I give a lecture that I think is a good lecture. And it didn't benefit anyone. So uh, you also don't know how your words are being received. Sometimes you hear them differently when you say them than the heart that is in front of you. And they needed to hear it in a certain way or see it in a certain way. Also, someone can tell when you're being sincere and you're speaking to them. Don't give da'wah looking down on someone beneath your nose, right? Give da'wah as someone who cares about the person in front of you. And if people can perceive your sincerity, nothing benefits the heart except that which comes out of the heart. If people can perceive that you're speaking from your heart and that you're being sincere towards them, then they're likely to overlook some of the things that you might say that maybe you didn't mean to say and to benefit much more because they can perceive your sincerity and your da'wah, inshallah. All right, I have one question. May I? <laughs> okay. Um, we're speaking about the hope. Um, do you think that the discussion of hope in the West is much have like differences from the discussion of hope in the East? Of course, with the modern term of West and East. Right. Someone might say, you know, it's easy for you to have hope because you're seeing this, this, and that happen. Right? And then I live in a country where I'm not seeing that happen. I'm seeing that it's becoming tighter for Muslims, tighter for Islam. I think it's important to recognize SubhanAllah, that even in the lifetime of the Prophet 
there were people in Medina and people in Mecca at the same time, and people in Abyssinia. And those three groups of people were all interacting with the, with the concept of hope in very different ways. While the Muslims were saying Allahu Akbar after Badr, Abu Jandal radiallahu anhu was locked up in a basement being tortured in Mecca. Right? Like it's, 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 it's interesting. In Abyssinia, the Muslims were encountering it in a different way. But the concept of trusting in Allah was, a same, was the same across the board. I get, you know, there was once a question that was asked by uh, someone on my hedge group, and I'll end with this, inshallah, because it tells you about what you're seeing, the light that you might be missing or, 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 or not seeing. He was really upset. He said, you keep talking about the reward of praying in the haram. And praying one time in Masjid al-Haram in Mecca is worth how many salawat? 100,000. He's like, how is it fair that Allah put me in America and these guys, and, and this, he said, they're not very nice people that live around the haram, get to go pray 100,000 salawats. He was really upset. Like he was deeply troubled. First time, by the way, it happened. Usually when I share that with my hajj group, they say, mashallah, let's make sure we catch every salah in jama'ah. This guy was like red in the face and angry. He's like, oh, these people can go pray 100,000 salah. I'm stuck in America. I have to pay all these thousands of dollars to come get a few salawats here. It doesn't make sense. And what I told him was, you are surrounded by non-Muslims. If Allah guides one person through your hand, it is better for you than the dunya and everything in it. You have opportunities these people will never have. Right? I recognize, how many of you have never seen someone say, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah? How many of you have never seen a convert in front of your eyes, someone convert to Islam in your eyes? You've never seen someone take shahada. Can you raise your hands? At least half of you have never seen someone become Muslim. In America, Salat al-Jum'ah, almost every week, alhamdulillah, in our masjid, someone says, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Someone takes shahada. It's a blessing. But you know what? Today, when I heard the adhan for Salat al-Fajr, I was like, Ya Allah, like what an amazing feeling to hear the adhan being called in the streets. How easy is it for you to go out and to be Muslim and not have to worry about someone saying something to you or doing something to you just because you're Muslim. Like the easiness, the blessing of your Islam here. It's a blessing, it's a ni'mah. So Allah has divided opportunities and divided his good deeds. They're all mercy of Allah, bounties from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala amongst the servants. And Allah knows you. You're here and I'm there for a reason. Trust me, the food is better here than Texas. And Turkey's a lot nicer. When I'm here, I'm like, why am I in Texas? All right. But Allah put me there and he put you here for a reason. Alhamdulillah. Allah made certain good deeds available to you that he has not made available to me and made certain good deeds available to me that he has not made available to you and opportunities. So the hope is once again in your efforts and what you're doing with your circumstances. And may Allah accept from all of us. Allahumma ameen. Jazakumullah khair.